Good to see everyone. Great to see everyone. For the next 40 minutes, you don't have to talk to anyone, and the introvert said amen. Um, it's good to see if I met you. I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Um, I was sitting here thinking while we were setting up, doing this thing that we're going to do on our phones, which just kills me in church, for one thing. But um, corporate worship is such a big deal. And so to take any amount of time to put something else in there. So just know that, that we try not to do that very often because we, we do take this time as so precious. And knowing you and just having the ability to contact you is really, really important. So I do thank you for doing it. We're going to be in Hosea, really chapter 12. Your program um, is lying to you, and that's my fault. Um, we're really only going to go through verse 6 of, of chapter 12. And then by God's grace, and this will be an absolute miracle, we're going to finish Hosea next week. Um, for, those that are, uh, for those that are interested in knowing where we're going, we're going to start a series on the Songs of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. So if you want to begin to kind of pre-read to prepare yourself, really an opportunity to look at what it looks like to walk as disciples of Christ through the summer. Um, before we go to God's word, let's, uh, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is an absolute gift that you would speak to us. Your word is always true. Your word is always right. Your word is always helpful. Where it comes with sharp edges, it's never meant to slay us, but to prick our consciences, to, to carve out the things in us that are unhealthy that we might come back to you and be healed. Father, let your word come with the weight that it deserves this morning. Allow us to be hungry for it, that, our, that the entirety of who we are might be online, that our minds, our hearts, our souls, our strength, we might bring all of those to hear your word. Grant us a humility as we bend our knees beneath it. But God, what we need every single week as we gather as your people is we need to leave this place not with more ideas on how to live not with challenges to face, not with summits to, to conquer. God, we, we, we're grateful for those things, but what we need more than anything else is that we would leave this place more impressed with King Jesus. So would you make him loud? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of big questions that parents face um, when they find out they're, they're pregnant or they're getting the joy of adopting. And this might feel like a, kind of a strange big question, but for, for our family, and I think for many families, one of the biggest questions you face is what do you name your child? What name are you going to put on them? Because you're kind of marking them out for a particular type of life. So some of us, we went with the kind of traditional always classic in style names like John or James or Jessica. Perhaps you went through a phase where you, you were at the time where people were going like old school, like, uh, like turn of the century names. So my, um, my, my wife's grandma, her name was Agnes. Her great aunt was Beatrice, but she went by dude or duty her entire life. When I met the dude, I was like, your, your great aunt's like the big Lebowski. I worked for a pharmacist when I was like 15, and his name was, a, was, it was like an old school mashup of Earl and Vern. It was Verl. I kept going, Earl? Verl. Verl. Maybe you go adventurous. You name your kid North, like Kanye West did, or Blue Ivy, like Beyonce did. 
Any Gwyneth Paltrow fans in the room? Goop, I see you. Her daughter's name's Apple. Apple. Or how about this one? I think we got a slide for this one because we don't even know how to pronounce it. <laughs> so a couple years ago, Elon Musk and uh, his girlfriend Grimes had a son. This is what they named him. I had to do a little research. We'll leave it up on the screen. Do a little research. How do you pronounce it and what's it, what's it mean? Okay, here, let me, let me give it to you. This is why you come to church, so you know how to pronounce this and what it means. The X represents the unknown variable. The, the kind of A-E ligature there, that's an old school Latin way of saying the phrase ash, or as Grimes said, it was the elven spelling of how she would pronounce love or artificial intelligence. The A-12 is the is a, is, a, is a handle for a precursor to what was their favorite aircraft that had the, uh, the code name Archangel. So we could say this kid's name is X Ash Archangel. You got it? Culture can mess up names too. Google came out with uh, their virtual voice assistant, Alexa. And then my friend, Alexis, Hated life. She was serving down in RK, and she said what was happening is kids were coming in, and they're like, hey, Alexis, get me a cookie. Hey, Alexis, I need some crafts. <laughs> Culture can mess up names quick. How about this one, Karen? Man, I feel bad. I really, truly did. Like, when people kept doing that, like, there's people named Karen. <laughs> it's become this meme it's a pejorative term for a white woman perceived as entitled or demanding beyond the scope of what is normal. There's a 2021 movie that came out called Karen, and it is a thriller. <laughs> We're going to look at one name today. In the Bible, it's a really important name. It's the name Jacob. And what we find in Jacob's name and in Jacob's story is our story. And what Jacob received is also what we need most, which is this, which is grace. We're going to look at two things, our need for grace and then how we cling to grace. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We'll start at Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, and read through verse 6. This is God's holy, wonderful, life-giving word, if we'll hear it. Ephraim feeds on or Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Feel free to grab a seat. To really understand what's happening in 
Hosea chapter 12 requires us to do really a deep dive into another book of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, we have uh, the account of Jacob's life and some really key events that are summarized here in Hosea chapter 12. There's this verse 3, in the womb, he, speaking of Jacob, took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. It's, it's, it's referencing back to this event when Jacob was being born. He was twins with his brother Esau. And as Esau was being born and Jacob was being born, Jacob grabbed at his brother's heel. He, what he's doing here, this, this name Jacob actually means to grasp. Jacob was a grasper at the beginning. To, we, we use this sort of language when someone grasps for fame or they grasp for money or they grasp for that which is not their own. And what we see in the life of Jacob is one of self-reliance, getting ahead at all costs. Verse 3 of Hosea, in the womb he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. That's what's known as what's a merism. It's, it's saying all of his life, saying when he was a baby to when he was a man. It's like when we say night and day, what we mean is all the time, or we say heaven and earth, what we mean is all creation. It was saying this is the pattern of Jacob's life, that he was always a grasper, taking what wasn't his. We see him grasping his brother's heel, and, and, and then in Genesis 25, we see him grasping his brother's inheritance. His brother Esau, they've grown up now. They're a little bit older. His brother comes in after hunting, and he's starving to death. And Jacob has made a, a pot of stew of some kind. And Esau's like, would you give me some of that? I'm, I'm starving to death. This is a brother talking to a brother on the cusp of fainting from exhaustion because he's so hungry. And Jacob says, oh, I'll give you some, but here's what you have to do for me. I will trade it for your birthright. As Esau is the oldest, there's a certain inheritance that he was at this cultural time allotted. And Jacob says, I will give you some food, but you have to give up your inheritance. Esau, knowing he was on the door of death, said, what good is my inheritance if I'm dead? And so he gives it to him. He makes this unfair trade. He grasps for it. We go on to Genesis 27. This is a wild story. Isaac, Jacob's dad, was old and advanced in years. He was at the kind of edge where he didn't know how long he was going to live. He had lost his ability to see very well. He really lost his eyesight, and he's sitting in a chair in a room, and he calls his son Esau. He says, Esau, would you, would you, would you come here? Come to your father. I don't know how long I'm going to be alive, but here's what I would like you to do. I want you to go out into the field. Esau was a wonderful hunter. He got in the field and said, I want you to go shoot the kind of wild animals that I love to eat. I want you to come back. I want you to prepare it for me. I want you to bring me this feast, and after you bring me this feast, my oldest son, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay my hand and give you a blessing. Now, for us in our culture, this doesn't feel like a big deal, but in the Bible, it was everything. So at the time, Isaac's wife is in the other room, overhears this exchange, and she pulls her son Jacob aside and says, Jacob, this is what your dad just said to your brother Esau. He said, you need to go out in the field, you need to go find an animal, you need to prepare it and bring it, and then I will give you a blessing. He says, here's what we're going to do. Jacob, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out, I want you to kill a goat, one of, one of those that are part of our livestock, so you'll be able to do it before Esau can do it. Once you go out and you get it, and then after you kill it, we're going to prepare it for him, and what you're going to do is you're going to actually take the skin of the goat, and you're going to put it on your arms, and you're going to take one of your brother's shirts, and you're going to put a shirt on. And the reason is, is because Esau was a really hairy guy. 
So he says, I want you to take this goat carcass, and I want you to put it on your hands. And then what you're going to do is you're going to come near to your father. You're going to bring this food to him. He's going to eat it, and then he's going to give you Esau's blessing. And so he does. Jacob grasping again, he's going, I want you to just think of, I mean, he goes to his blind elderly father and lies to him. And his dad says, wait, the voice, it sounds like Jacob, but his hands, they feel like Esau. And he smells like my son Esau. Are you sure you're Esau? And Jacob's like, oh, of course I am. And so then Isaac, his dad, he takes his hand and he lays it on Jacob and he blesses him. He, again, Jacob steals the blessing. His name began to get equated with synonymous with a deceiver. And one of the things we could apply, we could apply this a bunch of different ways, um, but here's one that I find is really helpful. Jacob was not a good guy, but God chose him anyway. Jacob was a deceiver, and yet God claimed him. Jacob was a grasper. Jacob was self-reliant, and yet God continued to pursue him. Let me give you the big takeaway um, of this sermon, and, and I believe the focus of this text and where we're heading. We belong to God by grace and grace alone. We belong to God by grace and grace alone. And we see it all just in this name, Jacob. The second half of verse four, it brings in another event in Jacob's life from Jacob 28. So in verse four, it says, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with him. In Genesis 28, this is referencing this, he met with God at Bethel. This is referencing Genesis 28. So Genesis 27, he's stealing the blessing from his blind father. In Genesis 28, Jacob is on the run. He's had to flee. I mean, he's, he's, he's worked his brother over. He's been a total con artist, and his older brother's an incredible marksman and a hunter. Jacob is scared for his life, and so he flees. He actually leaves, and on his way, he falls asleep in kind of this wilderness area, and while he's sleeping, he has a dream. He sees the heavens opened, and then there's like this ladder. Think of like a staircase between heaven and earth, and these angels ascending and descending upon this pathway. And then he hears this from the Lord. This is the promise that God gives to him. Remember, he's the guy that's fleeing from the Lord or fleeing from his brother because he's been so deceitful, and this is what God says to him. And behold, Genesis 28, 13 through 15, and behold, the Lord stood above and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Think of that promise. Think about who Jacob was when that promise was given. There wasn't repentance. There wasn't a calling out to God. There wasn't a, I'm going to change my ways, Lord. He was fleeing from his brother. He stole his brother's blessing, yet God claims him. Jacob had not done nothing to earn it. In fact, he'd done everything to, to 
not receive it. He'd done everything to not receive mercy. God claims him like he claims us, who do nothing to earn it. We belong to God by grace and to grace alone. Jacob is a story of us, um, but this is a massive question. Is he the story of you? Do you see yourself in this story? Notice this little pronoun shift that happens in verse 4, the second half of it. This is a really interesting. He, speaking of uh, Jacob, he's, Jacob met God at Bethel, and the Lord God spoke with us. That's a really weird shift. Wasn't God actually, if you go back to Genesis 28, he was actually talking to Jacob. So how is it here in Hosea, there's this little shift, but actually he was speaking to us. This is our story too, if we'll listen. What we all deserve for the grasping, for the deceit, for the rebellion is actually what this text starts with here in verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. This is a judgment indictment sort of text. It's saying because of the way that we live before God, what we deserve is judgment. The punishment is or should be real. The guilt is real. There needs to be a repayment for according to these deeds. But what this text is trying to point to is verse 6, there's a way out. And the question for, for us was the question that Hosea was trying to get his people to understand at this time is will you take it? Hosea was speaking to an entire people. He was speaking to a nation, but he was also speaking to the individual persons in that nation. We belong to God by grace and grace alone. But the question that this text should bring to us is, do you indeed belong to God? And that's where verses four through six, they they begin to lay out and show us how we get to do that. Verse three, it begins with Jacob grasping, and then it actually ends with him grappling. Um, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and then in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. This is going to another reference in Genesis. Um, this is Genesis 32. Jacob is on the run again. This time, at this point, he, he's gotten married. Um, he has two wives. I won't go into all the background of these stories, but he, he's running from his father-in-law, a guy named Laban, who he, Laban was very deceitful. Jacob was very deceitful. Now he's running from, from, from him, and he's trying to get away. And as he's running away, he, he kind of puts his family, uh, they go across this river crossing, and he's on the far side. His family's on the other side, and darkness comes in, and then a man shows up on the shore of this river, and picks a fight with with Jacob. They start to wrestle. They're wrestling, they're grappling, and then at some point in the midst of this fight, this this man just touches Jacob's hip, and it pops out a socket. Now, to dislocate your hip is is really, really, really difficult and insanely painful. But this man, he just touches him, and his hip goes out of joint. And what he begins to find out, Jacob finds out, is that this is no ordinary man, but his opponent is a, is a manifestation of God. Somehow God shows up, and he's wrestling with Jacob. And then he cries out. Jacob gets his hip displaced, and then he cries out this way. He says, I won't, go, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Jacob, in all of this pain, clinging, he says, I won't go unless you bless me. 
He strove with God. This is what verses 3 and 4 are saying in Hosea. He strove with God, and then with the angel, he prevailed. And then he weeps, and he seeks favor. Jacob finally can't be self-reliant. He can't, he can't win the blessing. He can't get it. He has to cry out for it. Genesis 32 is the story of God pursuing Jacob. Not primarily to fight him, to fight for him, but I want you to get this. He did fight him. I love how Tim Keller says, he says, God becomes out of love the enemy of your old self. The self that is not built on God and brings you into weaknesses so you can wake up and begin to grow a new self. This is what Hosea has been trying to do. God's mouthpiece to Israel, to his people. They become so deceived, so self-reliant, so uninterested in God at the centrality of their lives. He'd been pushed out to the periphery. And this book, with all of its hard edges, chapter after chapter, of telling God's people, you are so unbelievably guilty. God is coming as the enemy of that self so that Israel would wake up and return to God. I pray that's what he's been doing for us. The indictments of verse 2 were for the purpose of verse 6 that we might return. Um, because this story is so raw that I'm going to reference here in a minute, um, and because of the different stories in this room and the ages in this room, I won't unpack the details of it, but I do want to draw attention to a speech that was given in a courtroom um, a couple years ago by Rachel Denhollander um, confronting... Um, Herb user Larry Nasser. This is, I'll just quote her directly. Rachel says this. She says, she's looking at Larry. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you, you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed as of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. She goes on, you spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And then listen to this. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing and that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that as well. It's what Hosea was trying to do for God's people. 
believe in what God wants to do for us and, and all that stuff in our lives. All those indictments that ring true for us. Not that we would just be permanently owned and crushed by that guilt, but that we might call out for forgiveness. That we might turn and come back to the only one that can cleanse us and right us. That verse 2 and the indictments would give way to verse 6 in the returning. We belong to God by grace and by grace alone. Now, we haven't talked about verse 12 yet. It's a really tricky verse. It's really ambiguous, actually, in the original language and how you translate it. I think we have a slide for this, and it'll give you how two different uh, well-known translations translate it. One, the ESV, the English Standard Version, and one, the, the NIV. So the ESV translated like this, and you have it right here, but I'll read it again. Um, uh, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Okay, here's how the NIV translates it. Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Let's go back to the ESV again. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. NIV, Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful one. It's confusing. What is it? Is Judah faithful or unfaithful? I actually think the uh, trick of the text is trying to get both of those across. It's kind of like, yes. Yes. God's people are faithful to God and unfaithful to God. Yes. That's our story. Yes. Oh, we're faithful and we're unruly. Yes. That's what we are. There's an interesting thing that happens after um, Jacob's hip is dislocated. He actually is given another name. Um, Genesis 32, 27 through 30 says this. I think we have a slide for this. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said to him, this is the angel of the Lord. This is this manifestation of God. I won't even go into how that works out. But, um, but then the Lord, he says to him, he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. This is interesting. This is actually really interesting, and I would say it's, it's, it's unbelievably curious. Remember, this promise God gave to, to, to Jacob is that a whole nation would come from him, and that's what happened. The 12 tribes of Israel came from Jacob, and we know the nation of Israel and this multitude of people that, that were given a land and a place and a possession and a belonging. And then God chooses to know his people by this name, Israel. Do you know what the name means? It's really, really interesting. The ESV footnote if in your Bibles, if you have that, the footnote is helpful. It actually defines it. Israel means this, he strives with God. It can also mean this, God strives. Isn't that our story? And like the best way of understanding who we are with God, that we, we're just wrestling with God. We're, we're going towards him. We're running away from him. He's pulling us back. We're pulling away. He pulls us back. We cling to him tight. We stiff arm again. He comes and gets us. Over and over and over again. Isn't that the story that Hosea was laying out for his people? Oh, you people who are not my people, but now you're God's people. Oh, you people that should not receive mercy, but now I'm going to label you mercy. Or like Hosea's wife, Gomer, who was chronically unfaithful, and Hosea goes and gets her back and brings her home and says, you're still mine. 
that we cannot break God's love, even though sometimes we try. We belong to God by grace and grace alone. Let me deal with the biggest elephant in the room with this text. I, I don't know if you've been thinking this. I think this is the most curious thing. How in the world did Jacob defeat God in a wrestling match? It's ludicrous. It's, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. How did he possibly do this? Tim Chester has what I suggest is a really great answer. Actually, it's two different answers. Um, it's this. God makes himself weak so he can bless us. And God makes us strong so that he can bless us. God in that wrestling match made himself weak. And we see it in the fact that they're struggling, struggling, and he simply touches his hip and it goes out of joint. This was no contest. But God makes himself weak so that he can actually bless us. Like many dads, um, I loved to wrestle with my kids when they were younger. Like many kids, they loved to wrestle. But one of the questions you have is, how, do, how does like a 33-year-old not crush a 3-year-old? You know, how does somebody who weighs 200 pounds not just destroy a 35-pounder? Like, how does that happen? The answer is pretty easy, is you actually deny your strength. You, you, you take off the weight. You dial it back. You actually, as, as a daddy, what you do is you, you get on your knees, you lower yourself down, and you actually use your strength to help them from hurting themselves. You know how it is like a little toddler comes, I got you, dad. And they come and they hit you, and they're going to bounce off and smack the wall. And so as they bounce off, you grab them, and you lay them down gently. And then at some point in the wrestling match, you know what you do as a dad? You roll over on your back, and you pretend, oh, I'm fighting, I'm fighting. And then finally, your, your, your little son, your little daughter, they pin you. And you go, you won, and they say, yay. You become weak to bless them. You allow yourself to lose so they might win. Isn't that the story of the cross? Isn't that the story of the gospel that God, who in the highest heavens cannot contain, would be born as a baby? And the Lord who can command legions of angels would stay upon a cross? Listen to this from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did, now, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't do what Jacob did. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became weak so that he can bless us. God himself died that we might live. And I, I, I don't want to miss this moment. I mean, this, this doesn't, this, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't weakness in the way we understand it. This is like bridled strength 
for your and my salvation. I think about it in the in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this, this incredible children's series. I would recommend it to anybody. But the C.S. Lewis wrote to try to be this mythic retelling of the, 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 the Bible, really the, the Christian faith. And at the center of it, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is this, this figure, uh, this lion called Aslan, which is a sort of Christ figure. And towards the end of that book, there's a young man named Edmund, and he's made a deal. He's bartered with what's known as the White Witch. She represents evil. She represents the evil one, and he's made this deal, and he's gone back on it. He's broken it, and there's the, he's broken the commands of, of Narnia, and there needs to be righteousness that's poured out because he's broken the law. And so Edmund, what he deserves is to go to this place called the Stone Table and there be killed. But, but, but in the rules, one can substitute themselves in for the life of another. And so Aslan, even though Edmund has, has been wrong, he has done what Jacob, he's been a grasper, he's been a deceiver through trickery, trying to get ahead. The indictment stands. Aslan says, no, 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 I'll take his place. And in the book, and then also if you've seen the movie, it's this incredible scene where he's, Aslan is going towards the, the stone table. It's dark and there's all these torches everywhere. And there's this whole litany of grotesque beasts and the white witch cheering and jeering, and they're insulting, and they're cursing. And they take Aslan in this incredible, you know, he has a lion, just this incredible mane, and they shave him. They spit on him. And he's massive. And he just allows himself to get walked to this table. And they strap him down to the table, Is dripping with the spit of those cursing him. And then the white witch, she takes the, this, this dagger and she just pierces it through him. When I think of Christ on the cross, that, that scene comes in as Christ was led to the, 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 the mount of the skull. He's just carrying this cross surrounded by people spitting on him and jeering him, covered and whipped and his beard had been plucked out. And he's on the cross. And here's one of the things that just stuns me. When he's on the cross, people are mocking him. And often we have a picture of the cross. We have like a really tall cross. They wouldn't waste wood when they were crucifying someone. Typically, you're right down to, to ground level so people could come up in your face and mock you. And in that place, they said, oh, Jesus, you who said you can like destroy the temple and raise it, you can't come down off the cross and then we'll believe in you. But He stays. He took all of his strength and he stayed. He became weak so that we might be blessed. He became weak so that we might be saved. Oh, we belong to God by grace and by grace alone. God also makes us stronger so he can bless us. So why don't you look at verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. By the help of your God. See, the only way we can come back, the only way we can return, the only way we can wake up is if God, by his strength and his kindness, comes and he changes our hearts and he opens our eyes. Tim Chester says it like this, God himself empowers us to fight him for his grace. And it's a battle he wants us to win. We fight for grace through grace. 
He gives us the strength to come back, to return, to repent, to obey, to hold fast to love and justice. You know, what do we do with this text as we walk away? In this room, we're, we're all in such different spots. I give you one of the things. We wrestle with God, and we wrestle for grace. I'll end with a quote from Chester. The idea of wrestling with God, it captures the urgency, the passion, the fervor of our need of grace and desire for grace and love for grace. We are to be people who fervently seek God's grace and who are passionate about his grace. But we do so in God's power. God fought against Jacob, but he also empowered Jacob's victory. Our longing for God is evidence of God's work in us. Our seeking after God is proof of God's work in us. And then I love this, this next part that he adds in here. It's like, okay, I want God. I'm going after him. Oh, he's working in me. He's wrestled me to the ground. He's empowered me to do this. But what if that's not where you're at? Here's what he says. But what do you do when you do not feel passionate? And that was Hosea's people. Pretty numb to God. Pretty lukewarm. What do you do when you feel a bit flat? Or maybe you acknowledge that the truths of the gospel are amazing, but they just do not feel amazing. What do you do? The answer is, you fight. You fight for God's blessing. You fight for his favor. You pray until God moves you. You search his word until it blesses you. Think of yourself as wrestling in prayer for God's blessing, but know this, when you wrestle with God and win his blessing, God has not only fought against you, he's fought for you. He has empowered your longing. Why? Because he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to pursue him, to long for, to seek him, and in seeking, to find him, to know him, and to love him. There's so much in the name. I pray when you hear the name Jacob or Israel, I pray that the loudest thing in your head and your heart is this. That story's my story. And I belong to to God by grace and grace alone. And I'm going to hold on to God by grace and grace alone. And we will get to the end by God's grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Father, the story of your grace is so dazzlingly displayed in the life of Jacob, in the life of all of the the figures of Genesis, all of the, the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac, God, but it's dazzlingly on display in our own lives if you give us the eyes to see it. We get what we don't deserve because Christ took what we deserve. And we get what we haven't earned because Christ earned it for us. It feels so weak. It feels so feeble. It feels so incomplete and insufficient to say, Christ, thank you for becoming weak for us. Thank you for dying in our place for us, that we might be blessed. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to, to make these truths penetrate our hearts. We need the help of our God to do what this text says, that we might return back, that we would repent, that we would turn from our wandering, from our sin, from our indifference, and we would turn back and we would lay hold of our Lord and we would just cry out, would you bless us? Would you do that in this time, we pray. Amen. We're going um, to respond as we do every single week as a church by, by, re by receiving communion and responding in song and prayer and, and confession. Um, 
I, I know this time, because we do it every week, can, can feel like just this routine event, but, it, but we really see it as the most important thing we do as a church, that as we gather corporately, that we go to this, this table, this thing called communion, where we are retelling and remembering the story of, of, of the cross. As you take this little thing of juice that represents Christ's blood, and you take this little wafer or bread that represents Christ's body, what you're doing is entering into this text. And, and I pray that's what you would do, that, that you say the indictment on me is, is true. And without Christ, I am in my guilt. Without Jesus, I stand condemned, but there's one who came to take that for me. And then your active participation, here's, here's what you're doing. You're actually physically acting out this verse six to, to return. That is, you sit in the pew and you confess your need for Christ. Then you get up and you go to this table. That's what you're doing. You're returning to the Lord and you're saying, my only hope is in Christ. I, I am God's. As you hold these, I am God's by grace and grace alone. I come empty-handed. But what I receive is the very work of Jesus Christ in my place. So I invite you to this table through, through one, one barrier to turn from your sin and to turn towards Christ. And then you get to come freely, joyfully, forgiven, declare righteous, knowing you're his by grace alone. There's, there's uh, individual service communion in the back of the room for those that would prefer to have uh, bread, um, a, a chunk of bread and, and juice. There's that in the front of the room. You can go to any table as you feel led as we begin to sing and worship our king together. Go to the table as you feel led.